Hey, this is Gavin Wood, bringing Countdown back to 6 o'clock Sunday night. I'll recap the national top ten from days gone by. And you can dance. And chat exclusively with the big names from the countdown days. Glenn Shorick. Kate Soprano. Ivor Davies from Ice House. And it all starts with Daryl Braithwaite. It was pandemonium. You didn't really know how it all came together or whatever, but that ABC, they did it very, very well. Sunday night from 6 on Gold 104.3. WSFM, the 80s on iHeartRadio. On Classic Hits, 4KQ and 96FM. Gavin Wood's Countdown Podcast. Proudly brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating lives. Hi, this is Ross Wilson, and you're listening to Gavin Wood Countdown Podcast. Over 55 years of Aussie music, and my next guest has done it all. Singer, songwriter, producer, from the Pink Finks, Daddy Cool, Mondo Rock, and to Ross the Boss. Yes, we're ready to sit down and have a chat with Ross the Boss, Ross Wilson. Hi, Ross. Hey, Gavin Wood, how you doing? I'm very well, and uh, it's, it's always nice to speak to you. Oh, thank you. You've been in the business for a long, long time, over 40 years. You started... Can't get rid of me. <laughs> <laughs> well, the good thing is, I mean, we all had garage bands back in the 60s, back in the late 60s. Yeah. But, man, you had a band when you were at school. I mean, how cool is that? They built us as, like, the youngest R&B band. You know, it was when the R&B explosion after the Beatles and the Stones. The Stones came along and everything went a bit more kind of R&B-ish. Not like what they call R&B now. Yeah. It was more like, you know, primitive blues kind of stuff. We had a primitive little band in Brighton, Hampton area called the Pink Finks, and we were all still at school. So when we did have a minor hit record and they put us on TV, they were billing us as the youngest R&B band in Australia. <laughs> and Ross Hannaford was uh, in that band. He went to school with you, correct? Well, he went to another school, but was in the same neighbourhood. We had myself and Richard Franklin was on drums, and we were both from... Halebury College in South Road, Brighton, and then not far away was uh, Brighton High School, and we had um, some, the rest of the members were, were from there, including Ross Hannaford. He was only 13 at the time. And he was playing guitar at 13. He actually had a little band that went on uh, Channel 2 children's program called the Shoeshine Jazz Band, in which he played banjo when he was like about 11 or something. <laughs> oh, what an interesting guy. Yeah, <laughs> you two uh, were absolute pioneers. You know, going to all those suburban dances. I, I was speaking to someone the other day, and I said, you know, the big thing about the suburban dances, you pay what two bob to get in or a bob to get in, yeah, and then you'd pay ten cents for the cordial. Yeah, that's where the promoters made all the money was the cordial. The cordial, <laughs> a dollar went a long way in those days. Well, it wasn't even we didn't even have dollars until 1966. I think we were around in 1965. Yeah, you know, it was big the great thing about those uh, suburban dances was because the licensing laws were a lot tighter then, so there was no liquor allowed at, at any of those dances. So they were teenage dancers, and, uh, you, and and we could play there because we were teenagers too and there was no grog involved. So it was it was fantastic. Every weekend we'd go up and play three or four of those um, places like Mentone, the Town Hall, and, you know, Stonehenge down at the Morris the Morris Community Centre, right. all the neighbourhood dancers, and it was a great way to learn how to do things. And you were, and and you really were a pioneer, even in your formative years back then. Uh, you had your own record company, Mojo Records. That was because we could, we were in a hurry, you know, and we thought, well, we can't be bothered um, doing the rounds with all the record companies. 
we'll just make it ourselves. <laughs> so we, we booked some time at a studio. A very It was a place where they used to record a lot of jazz bands. And so they, we, there was no overdubbing, and they just set up a couple of mics, and we played completely live, and I was shouting away and playing some harmonica. And we did two takes of Louie Louie, you know, yeah. and we kept the first one. We thought the first one was best. So basically one take wonders and then cut a B-side, and then we put it out on our own label, Mojo Records, which my brother my brother was an art student, and he designed the uh, label for us. So Fantastic. it was all very in-house, and we got the guys who, um, who at the studio that we did it at, they were called Crest, and they put out a lot of, uh, you know, jazz bands and things like that, because there was all of that trad jazz explosion before the Beatles. And, uh, and so they distributed it in in our neighborhood and it and it sold enough copies to get on the charts so we were we were going wow you know we don't need a record company but then we thought nah we'll sign to a record company we came sniffing around after that and we signed with melbourne company w and g well it's a it's a great way to launch a career isn't it do it all yourself which is what everybody's doing now you know it's kind of what the saints did too you know they put out I'm stranded on some little yeah. one of their own labels. I think it was Rebel Records, I think. And then they got, you know, played in, in England and suddenly everyone wanted them and they, they made an album for EMI and that was, you know, worldwide fame. Now, <laughs> so sometimes it's good, good to be proactive. Oh, yeah, mate. Ahead of your game, I'm, I'm really impressed with your story. Now, who would have thought a young Ross Wilson would have thought that in 2005 he would have been inducted into the ARIA Hall of Fame and then in 2006 as a member of Daddy Cool, and then yep. in 2009 inducted into the Australian Songwriters Hall of Fame. Yeah, that, and then Daddy Cool got in the Victorian Hall of Fame. The last gig that Daddy Cool ever did, we reformed in 2016 and went into the Age and Victorian uh, Music Hall of Fame, which was, for me, that was one sort of one of the biggest things, really. I thought that was a great nod in our direction to acknowledge us as a Melbourne band, you know. Yeah. After the Pink Finks, you went to London and then came back and formed Daddy Cool, or did you form Daddy Cool? Well, what happened was that after the Pink Finks, like, we were in 1965, and a couple of us were, like, that was our last, our 12th year of school, right? So right. The, a couple of them decided they were going to go to university, and, you know, and, and, and I had to go and get a job, you know, and Hannaford was still at school. Um, but Hannah and I decided we'd stick together, and we kept Pink Finks going for a while with different members and gradually it mutated into a new band. The Party Machine. Which had Mike Rudd of Spectrum and I'll Be Gone fame. Yeah, he was playing bass. Uh, on bass. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. So the Party Machine was where we started writing lots and lots of songs. And, and, and I don't think very many people have pointed this out, but even though we broke, broke up when uh, after about two years and I went off to London to do a few things, off to England, when I came back, uh, Mike Rudd had formed Spectrum by that stage. Yeah. And then shortly afterwards, I got Daddy Cool together. And we had back-to-back number one singles. So, like, with I'll Be Gone and Eagle Rock. So the, the Party Machine was a very important band in the sense that we learnt all about writing songs and, and we wanted to keep writing our own songs, you know. Mm, mm. And it all came to fruition after we had a little break and then came back together. Party Machine was sort of, even though we were enthusiastic and, and that we we went pro professional and immediately got ripped off all over the country oh, no. and, and came back with our after our first tour and and the last thing that happened to us all our gear got stolen so i we all came back to to melbourne going oh gee what do we do now and out of the blue i got a call from 
Brian Peacock, who I knew a little bit about, but I knew Procession, the band he was in. Yeah. And he said, oh, you know, we've had a few lineup changes. We think we'd like to have a front man and we really, really like what you do, writing songs and singing and all of that. Would you come over? And I and and I'd just received an insurance check for an accident that I'd had when I was about 16 or 15. I'd got hit by a car and I just turned 21 and I got suddenly I had $2,000. So I spent that on the air ticket and the, it was the first time I'd ever flown anywhere and I flew off to London. And uh, and spent six months with those guys all through the the summer of '69 over there, you know, like in the middle of the year and having a wonderful time and playing the Marquee Club and doing a lot of great things. And eventually, that fell in a heap too. So I we um, by that time I'd married the Bop Girl Pat. Yeah, had uh, come over to join me, and we hitchhiked back across the world, had a lot of adventures, and landed back in Melbourne. And then about six months later. I had Daddy Cool. Well, how exciting was that to have Brian Peacock say, hey, Ross, come over. Yeah. That's well, pretty it was, cool. It was okay. I went, okay. So I went over there and it turned out like half the band were a bit kind of, oh, gee, we don't know if we want this guy. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> I had to prove myself yeah. and, uh, and and sort of show to them that I was enthusiastic. And that. We ended up having a great time, you know, and, and wrote wrote a bunch of songs together and, like I said, played some interesting clubs and, and gigs and, and – uh, but then eventually they ran out of money, and that was that, you know. <laughs> well, some some great experiences. Yeah, it was it was a very big uh, thing, especially the the coming back from uh, England, you know, through Europe and uh, with no money, by the way, through yeah. Europe and and um, and then Asia, like uh, India and and oh, we went to all these places that you hear about in the news now that you you know you can't go to anymore. Just about we went to like Syria and Iraq oh. and Iran. And it was really mind-blowing stuff. You know, Ooh. we had some fantastic experiences mm. and through India and uh, Malaysia and, you know, oh, Kuwait. We went to Kuwait. It was it was incredible. Ended up in Darwin with, with no money at all. So we, we both conned our way into some jobs at the Darwin Hotel. And this this is – I was like a yard man, which is a dog's body, you know. Yeah, out, yeah. And the gully traps and do Kept whatever you humble. they tell you. Kept you humble. <laughs> yeah, tri- trim the bougainvillea and all that. <laughs> and I remember quite vividly, like, trimming the bougainvillea and thinking and thinking of these songs I was writing in my in my head. I didn't have a guitar, you know. Hmm. And I was singing, zoop, bop, shang-a-lang, gold Cadillac, you know. I was sort of writing them in my head. Because I wanted to do this, uh, this I wanted to go and do some simple music after playing all this prog rock. I was going, oh, let's get back to basics, like all the music I loved when I was a kid. So that's how Daddy Cool came about. Well, Daddy Cool was one was one of the most amazing bands. I, I just adored Daddy Cool, and and most of Australia did. You just captured the moment, didn't yeah. you? We did. We had our moment, and it was just a wonderful uh, combination of guys. You know, we had. Uh, Gary Young on drums mm. and Wayne Duncan on bass, and they were they were already a, a a very fully formed rhythm section with a lot of experience, even though they were still only in their mid twenties and stuff. Mm. Uh, but they'd played in in uh, you know with Bobby and Laurie and the Rondells, and they'd been pop stars with them, and then the Ram Jam big band and various other combos. So they had a lot of experience and and experience of different kinds of music and a depth of knowledge about early rock and roll and, mm. and soul music and all, all that kind of stuff. It's very similar to Russ Hannaford and I. You know, we, we were a, a bit of a team too. We'd sort of grown up together, mm. like I said before, learning how to write songs and, and, and play. And we had a, a love of John Lee Hooker and Old R&B and, 
and we put all that together and we found that we, you know, we had four voices as well. It was like we could, and I wanted to do a lot of doo-wop music and, and so we had the four-part harmonies and Hannaford had grown a, another couple of feet tall <laughs> by that stage and his voice had broken and he was like, no, 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 no. And I was up, <laughs> and the other two guys are in the middle, you know, so like we were able to do these terrific harmonies and, 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 and just a four-piece group, you know, it was fantastic. Well, I, you know, it, it was just the right time for it, wasn't it? You, you guys became, you know, the band, of course, with the album Daddy Who, Daddy Cool. Yeah. You know, that was that was uh, <laughs> widely accepted, and Eagle Rock was on that album. Yeah, well, we, we kind of broke the, the prog rock, progressive rock bubble. We started out playing in these underground dances, like TF Much Ballroom in Brunswick Street. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Cathedral Hall, which is now called Catholic Hall, still there, still looks the same. And that was fantastic. All these hippies would roll up and, and we all jump around the room and, and there's a little kind of happenings and events happening there. So, uh, and, and then, but Daddy Cool came out of that scene and suddenly everybody was, instead of sitting on the floor listening to, you know, big long solos, which was the, at the time the thing, thing to do, mm. um, suddenly they're all going, oh, yeah, we can dance to this nice, short, sharp music again. So uh, we we took over Melbourne in, in about six months. We put out our first single and, and then it took off like a rocket and that was that. Yeah, good, happy music. Now, have you patented Now Listen? I haven't patented Now Listen, but we have trademarked the, the name Daddy Cool. So, Oh, excellent. Uh, anybody who's thinking of calling their stuff Daddy Cool, have to talk to me first. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Speak to the managing director. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, the um, the album I was, well, this is when I was in my garage band in Brisbane, and uh, the album was banned in Brisbane because of uh, Joe Bianchi Peterson being uh, uh, being an idiot. Um, but Sex, Dope, Rock and Roll, Teenage Heaven, one of the greatest albums of all time. Yeah, it's a pretty good album. I mean, it, it surprised a lot of people because... The first album was kind of very happy and 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 you know had a naivety about it. Mm. Um, but the second album, it was like it was like good. The first album was like good, cuddly, daddy cool, and the second album was like evil rock and roll, daddy cool. You yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> so we kind of blew a few people's minds there. Yeah, hi, honey, ho. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and uh, and of course, baby, let me bang your box, which is just one of those amazing songs that uh, that yeah, puts yeah. a smile on your face every time you say the title. Yeah. You know, yeah, double on Tadra City. You know, like most of oh, that was a that was a hit in nineteen fifty one in the states. And we were doing a revival of it. You know? mm. I think our version's pretty damn good, actually. And Joe Bialki Peterson wouldn't dance to that one. Joe Bialki Peterson, Peterson, I don't think he could dance full stop. You know, <laughs> it's like the biggest, the biggest stick in the mud. And the and the cops were, you would have known Brisbane. The cops were like out of control there. You know, like oh, they were. They're too tough. And protesters and yeah. all the rest of it. It's terrible. Yeah. Yeah, they were tough. Of course, when you have an album that's banned in Queensland, you sell more copies. That is hopefully what happens. And I, and I learned a bit of a lesson. I actually learned that lesson starting off with Party Machine because being um, we only ever put out one single, but we had all these original songs. So I thought I had a bright idea and we printed up a song book to give, a, give away at gigs or sell for 20 cents or something, you know. And yeah. uh, we, some mother objected to this when they found the child with our, our outrageous uh, lyrics in our sa- songbook. One mm. song was called I, 
don't believe all your kids should be virgins. <laughs> it's <all> about <laughs> the sexual revolution and taking the pill and stuff. So like, so, uh, so some kids, some kids' mother objected to that. And talking about Joby Elka Peterson, well, down in Melbourne, we had our own version of that. It was Arthur Ryler and, and Henry Bolte, and, and Arthur Ryler ran the Vice Squad. And so the Vice Squad seized all the songbooks, and we got on TV going, you know, a, a very young David Johnson, the, the newsreader, interviewing me on Six mm. the Beach, going, well, Ross Wilson, what, do you, what is all about this songbook? And you're in a lot of trouble now, you know. And I'm going, oh, yeah, it's just about kids and what kids do and blah, blah, blah. So we got the biggest biggest publicity we'd ever got, you know. And, and so Yeah, you can't pay me, for that. So that taught me a bit of a lesson that we – so I wasn't that fussed about calling the album – uh, Daddy Cool album, Sex, Dope, Rock and Roll. I thought that'd get mm. a bit of attention. And, and, you know, some of it got some of the wrong attention. And, for, for instance, Myers refused to stock it because of the, the furor about it. Mm. But uh, And then, uh, of course, was when I produced Skyhooks, same thing happened there. They got, like, half of their album wasn't allowed to be played on the radio and they sold, like, quarter of a million copies, you know. <laughs> You're such a controversial artist. I am. I, <laughs> I do naughty things, yes. Freedom but, but, but the, of course, and and the good thing about sex, dope, rock and roll, Teenage Seven, we all used to drive down to Tweed Heads, yeah. to buy the album. Oh, terrific! Over the border, yeah, yeah. Where so, everything was, so, was open and free, yeah, yeah. So, so we're all switched on. So you you sold just as many copies in Queensland as you did around the rest of the country. Yes, yeah, fantastic. And by the way, we we got released. Um, in in uh, all around the world, actually, on uh, Reprise Records. So there's fans of Daddy Cool everywhere, you know, just pop up in the strangest places. The albums were slightly different um, uh, when they came out in the States. For instance, they dropped a couple of the songs from uh, Sex, Dope, Rock and Roll, Teenage Heaven, uh, and put on some new tracks that we'd put, uh, had recorded, like mm. uh, Teenage Blues and... And I'll never smile again. They went on that. The album is actually really good. The American version of that, and and they shortened the title to just Teenage Heaven. They left all the. Thought in retrospect, hey, maybe I should have done that. You know, Tobin Brothers Funerals. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hi, this is Ross Wilson, and you're listening to Gavin Woods' Countdown Podcast. So you actually toured America too. Was that on the the back of that album? Yeah, Yeah. three times we went. Uh, With various. First time we went, we played the 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 whiskey go go in Hollywood, and there was a good publicity. Isn't that funny? When when you went to the whiskey go go, thinking that oh we're going to play the whiskey, you walk in there and the stage is so small. It's a small room. Yeah, it's not that big. You know. No. But we went there as a showcase because, and out of that we got a deal with Reprise Records. Who released them. Is that Frank Sinatra's? Yeah, it was. He was. He started that label. That's right. Yeah, there was a guy in charge at the time called Mo Austin, who he was a pretty big wig, and we met him a couple of times. But uh, yeah, they released uh, both the albums, and so with the next two, we went. We went over, and it was. They used to do things like they'd have. Um, it was Warner Reprise, right? So Warner Brothers Reprise Records, and so all they they put on tours where. That all the artists were of the one label, yeah. you know. Wow. So it didn't. So we went on this tour. There was this national tour book with Deep yeah. Purple and Fleetwood Mac, right? <laughs> like Daddy Cool with Deep Purple. How different can you be, you know? But uh, 
and unfortunately, so we started off. Right, right, I remember that. Yeah, and and we were playing some big gigs down in Virginia or somewhere, and and uh, Florida. Right, and then after about four gigs, Ian Gillan, the singer of Deep Purple, he got glandular fever or something. So like, they had to pull out, and um, wow. and okay. so we'd arrive in another city, and they go, oh, gigs cancelled, yeah. or it was either that, or there'd be like um, a substitute group like instead of deep purple i had like 10 years after or someone like that you know so we were playing these places and 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 sometimes the people didn't like the fact that deep purple wasn't on so like (laughs) i love the way like americans just do things over the top you know they'd like storm the gates and like you know get in for free and all of that because you know they were angry that deep purple wasn't on and the best best one was we're playing this unit university and Deep Purple right. had just gotten sick, I think. The guy who got sick and something had happened. And oh no, that's right. And the, the, the and so they announced, oh, Deep Purple can't play tonight, right? Mm. So we've already played because we're first on the bill. <laughs> yeah. And the the, the, the Fleetwood Mac, which yeah. was a kind of one not quite the same as the yeah. one that became real famous, uh, they played after us. And then the then the peak, then they were going like. Deep Purple aren't on tonight. So like, all these kids rushed down the aisle with what they call cherry bombs, which are like big crackers, yeah. and stuffed them in the PA and blew the PA up, <laughs> which I thought was incredible. You know? <laughs> we're just watching this thing go on, you know. But they liked us. They thought we were fun, you know. <laughs> of course they would have liked you. Yeah. I found over there that they're very straight and religious when they want to be. But I saw the Eagles at the Hollywood Bowl thinking, oh, this is going to be great, you know, sitting here at the Hollywood Bowl watching the Eagles. The Eagles came on, and all these Americans, they just talked all the way through them. Yeah. And they're they're up the back on having a party and everything like that, and I'm thinking, shut up and listen to the music. For real. (laughs) (laughs) They're crazy. But one thing I did enjoy about the Americans was that they, if they liked you, they really, really liked you. You know, yeah. they would be very enthusiastic about it. So yeah, we we went over, we went over real well, and we, we then we went back on the third tour where we played mostly um, colleges around the Midwest and that, mm-hmm. and that was fantastic. And we went back to one of town where we had played with uh, Fleetwood Mac, for instance, and we'd we'd had the number one album in between, fantastic. and they met us at the at the airport with a. You know, TV crew and all that. So we we had a taste of what it could could have been like if we bothered to stay on the road and tour incessantly. You know, but we didn't want to do that. Hmm. So, well, we came home. Unfortunately, it's a big place, and that's what you've got to do. But but the thing that's what you've got to do. The yeah. thing in America, if you have you know one or two hits, you can tour for the rest of your life. Yeah, it is that. <laughs> you know, whether you want to do that or not, that's another thing. So um, after the American um, uh, three tours, were you kind of burnt out and uh, wanted to look for something different? Well, it was a bit of that. And it's also, there's a couple of things, actually. One, we were very disenchanted with our American management. Right. We didn't like, you know, well, personally, I didn't like them. And that we, I think they made some bad decisions mm-hmm. and, and, and basically just didn't like them, you know. And, that, and plus they were, wouldn't, they were dishonest as well. They wouldn't give us figures on, you know, record sales and all no, that kind of stuff. They Americans dishonest? Yeah. Oh, come on, Ross. Yeah, oh. they bullshitted us, basically. <laughs> you know, so we were pretty annoyed about that. I don't blame and, you. And, but the other thing that was, while I was over there, I mean, Daddy Cool was a kind of a freak thing because it wasn't something that I thought 
I'll form a band and and what I do here will become real big. I had no idea. Mm. You know, I just wanted to play some simple music and play eagle rock and sing doo-wop music because I was interested in it. And uh, after two albums, it was sort of like, uh, you know, like I don't want to have to just keep repeating myself. And But I saw in America that, you know, they loved contemporary music and I wanted to go back to writing more contemporary stuff like I did in the Party Machine. And... um, and, and take that to America, you know. And so we did that, except we didn't get to America, but we did. I formed a group called The Mighty Kong with uh, Ross Hannaford, and it was a step in, it wasn't retro, you know. Mm-hmm. It was Daddy Pooh was uh, like looking back over his shoulder at old rock and roll. Um, and so that was, uh, that. What's, that's what happened there. But that only lasted for one album in a year. And then by then I I pretty much discovered and started mentoring Skyhooks. And that became my next big thing. Man, three albums you produced for Skyhooks. I did, yeah. Or as I like to call them, the ones with the hits. Yeah, yes, of course. And, and mate, wasn't it groundbreaking, though, because all of a sudden Australia grew up and we started singing about our places here, not about Memphis, Tennessee, you know? Yeah, well, that's, well that was the genius of Greg McCain, you know, who wrote, wrote 90% of the songs for Skyhooks. Mm. And uh, that was beautiful how he how he pulled that off because not many people had. I mean, the country and western artists had country artists. They would sing about Tamworth and you know, kind of Malafala and mm. all that stuff. Mm. But uh, in the cities, you know, rock and rollers didn't do that until um, till Greg McCain and Skykes came yeah. along and, and they sang about everything you know, like Baldwin and yeah. Carlton and you know a few more places as well. And 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 all the all the fans loved it. They loved it because it was one. It was they all related to it, but they were bloody great songs, yeah. and that's which is what attracted me to them. We, we were playing one of the very last Mighty Kong gigs at the Melbourne Uni, and the early Skyhooks they had a different singer and all that, but they were supporting us. and And I went, "What's this?" You know, <laughs> listening to these songs, they had everything I liked. You know, yeah. irreverence. Um, humor and they could play you know so like it was it was as though i was kind of discovering which kind of was discovering the new daddy cool because daddy cool held Mm. the the record for selling the most australian rock albums in uh and we sold about a hundred thousand daddy who's but then skyhooks came along and they smashed that they sold like quarter of a million of of um living in the 70s in the first year you know Incredible. You know, we all we all love and, and miss Sheryl, but how good was Shirley Strawn? He was fantastic, you know. He was a, what he used to he used to bemuse me though, you know, because he we'd be in there cutting an album or some songs and stuff and we were recording at like um Television City Sound, which is T C S and that was it used to it was at the back of Channel Nine Studios in Bendigo Street, Richmond, and it had been a big sound stage. So it was beautifully set up, big room, and it turned it into a recording studio. And and I'm going, okay, sure, get out there and you know, here we are making this album and you know, we've had a couple of hits and stuff and, and he'd be looking around and, and going, I was saying saying, you know, when this is all finished, I just want to be, I want to be like Don Lane. I want to have my own show and TV okay. and all that. And I'm going, right. what the, what? Get, 
get in there and sing. What are you talking about? To me, like to want to have your own tonight show was about the furthest thing that I would ever want to do, you know, be a, a TV head, Matt, but, I'm, you know, not putting you down or anything, Gavin, because you're a TV person, but it was the last thing I wanted to do. I just wanted to make music and make, you know, and make this band that I had that didn't sound like anybody else. <laughs> you know, I wanted to extract it the best I could out of them, and, and I think we succeeded in that, you know. By you saying that, would you say that uh, Sherl was a reluctant rock star? No, not at all. I think he loved getting out and layering around. And you see, he had a natural voice. He could sing really well. Yes, he was. And I think because it was so easy for him, I don't think he thought anything about it. It was just like, oh, that's something I can do. Hmm. It wasn't until a few years later I heard him like singing with the Party Boys and that, and he'd kind of hit his straps again and he's singing great, you know, singing like Led Zeppelin songs and, hmm. and all this stuff. But I think he, by that time, he'd appreciated that, hey, I do have something that's worth, you know, celebrating and using. But uh, he seemed to just shrug it off at the time. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. But I always loved working with him, you know. He, he, I'd just say, hey, Phil, how about we try singing it this way? And I'd sing a line. I'd say, you know, just move around the melody a bit more and he'd go out there and then bang, he'd do it, you know? Yeah. It's fantastic. Oh, mate, such a, such a, a brilliant talent. Uh, we, all, we all love him. Now, uh, you went on to produce uh, a couple of JoJo Zepp albums too with Joe Camilleri. The first album, which was called Whip It Out, I think. Um, <laughs> I don't remember that was, one. <laughs> no, exactly. And, and that was like... Joe was the singer and sax player, but right. the other singer and the main songwriter was Wayne Burt. And he was another of my discoveries. He'd been playing with um, Pat and Pat's brother in this band called um, Rock Granite and the Profile. Right. And I really liked his songs, and so I was trying to get him off the ground as well. And so when Joe – I produced a, a, a single for Joe Camilleri, and he came up with the name Joe Joseph and the Falcons – and then put the band together around him, you know, which was um, actually they had been Pat's band, the Marvels, and it was uh, Jeff Thurston on guitar and Wayne Burt and all that. So the first al album was mainly Wayne Burt songs, except for, like, I think one instrumental that Joe came up with. And then this, Joe kind of got the vibe in. He was going, like, I'm going to write songs too. So next thing, he's, like, writing songs, and I was coming up with stuff for them to do. And they, they did one okay. more album with me. And then they jumped ship and went over to Mushroom, and Mushroom uh, got behind them and got them uh, Pete Solly as a producer, and that's where they came up with uh, Screaming Targets, I think it was, which yes, had a, that's uh, right. Yeah, hit and run, hit and run, yeah. But I think I had an influence there because I had a, I was kind of introduced uh, Joe to reggae music, and he got right stuck right into it. And there was one track on um, that we covered a reggae track on one of the judges' albums called I'm in a dancing mood, you know, and he still plays that. That was a reggae song. So he got right, stuck right into reggae, and, and uh, next thing you know, he's, he's had a, having a hit, hit album without me. So that, But we got him off the ground, so that was the main thing. Well, speaking of success, you, my friend, 45 singles and EPs, 17 in the top 40, 25-plus albums. You've done a fair bit over the journey. Yeah, I've got another album in me. I'm put, putting a few things together at the moment, actually. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, we've had six and months of lockdowns. So I've had to find things to do. Yeah. And uh, yes. You know, so I've written a, <laughs> written a few songs, and also, um, you know, I've got I've actually got a, quite a few songs, a backlog of things I haven't recorded. So 
they're nagging me and I've got to get in and, and do those pretty soon, I think. So will this be done under the guise of Ross Wilson or Mondo Rock or, yeah. or another band? No, Ross Wilson. Okay. Ross Wilson. Mondo Rock's had a good year. We put out a, a live album, Live at the Pier, from back in 1981. Uh, it sounds incredible. Yes, I. Mondo Rock's yeah, summer of '81 live at the pier. It's fantastic. Album. Yeah, Jimbo Barton did that up in Sydney, correct? He did. He did. Yeah. yeah. He just did uh, Max Merritt's album. Fantastic. Yeah. So that's coming out, I think, in the next couple of weeks. And that's good. Yeah, it's good these things get heard. Yeah, I've had. I'm a... really glad that the Mondo's live album came out. It's a a great document of, of, of you know, we were really peaking at the time. It's fantastic. Well, can I tell you, and this is this is the, where the big compliment comes in, because I'm a huge fan of Mondo Rock. Thank you. And when, and when we did Countdown, the Arena Spectacular, you did 10 minutes of the greatest medley. It blew <laughs> yeah. my mind. You yeah, were right. so you were so full on and so tight and so on. You you destroyed everybody on the bill. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. That's what, that's what I like to do. <laughs> well, I don't care was... if I'm the top of the bill or not. You can put us on at the opening act while I, my job then is to blow everybody else off, you know. Well, I, I saw it in your eyes. You came out and you had that drive and I, I, I went, this is going to be good. And it was. It, it was just – and it's on – There's the clip is on YouTube. Yeah. Well, we had that quandary of like there's so many acts on the bill and, you know, it's a countdown. It's like the thing is like countdown spectacular. So the, the whole idea is countdown. So it's not yeah. like you can spend half an hour. So well, we're going, like, oh, 10 minutes, what can we do in 10 minutes? So we concocted that medley so we could, you know, squeeze a whole lot of things into one thing. Man, it was mighty. It blew me away every night. I, I, I waited for Mondo Rock to come on. I think I, when I went, the mighty Mondo Rock, and I yes, threw down mate. the headphones and ripped out the side stage just to watch you live. It was every night, and I loved it. It was, yeah, I it thought was that just. Was, that was a great tour, and there were so many good people on it as well, you know. Mm, mm. Well, you were the star in my eyes, my friend. Thank you. And going from Daddy Cool and, and putting that to bed, and then. Coming up with Mondo Rock, found Eric McCuss. Where did you find Eric? Well, I, Mondo Rock came about when um, I, you know, I sort of had done the third Skyhooks album, but I, around about that time, I'd also done this soundtrack for a movie made by a friend of mine, Chris Lafane. It was called Oz, a rock and roll road movie, and it's all about it's a Wizard of Oz story, but set in Australia with, you know, um, and it's a really good movie actually. And you can see okay. that on, if anyone wants to see it, you can see it on YouTube. Mm. There's a, a very good quality version of it there now. It's like a time capsule of 70s Melbourne. It's fantastic. Oh, good. Well, be looking for that. So I did the soundtrack for that album, and then off that came the song Living in the Land of Oz. Okay. So I, that was under my, the first time I'd ever had a solo single. So we released that to help promote the movie and everything. And, and then that was like, well, you got to do some gigs. So they so say, like, well, Ross, what are we going to call you, your new band? We're not going to call it Ross Wilson or are you going to have a band? And I said, well, I have a band. Well, let's call it Ross Wilson's Mondo Rock, hmm. and, and, um, which Frank Stavallo, my agent, loved being of Italian extraction. Hmm. He said, that's great. <laughs> and I said, why? And he said, oh, that's Italian. means world. I said, oh, okay. Even better. <laughs> Mondo, Mondo, Mondo Rock. So world of rock, rock world. So. There, there you go. That's how it all came about. So I, I went out and um, did some shows and then 
I was getting pretty sick of just being a sort of producer guy by that time. I hadn't, and I got the taste of live gigs back. And so I started to do that more often and, and gradually we became a permanent band and, a, and we released an album called Primal Park right. in 1979. Mm-hmm. We had a single before that called The Fugitive Kind, which I think, which we did do on Countdown. Good song. And yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. That was our debut single. And then we had a couple of singles that didn't go anywhere, but we also did them on Countdown. That was the beauty of Countdown. You could you could go on and do your new single, and if it didn't make the charts by the next week, you knew you, it was a flop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good okay. indicator. <laughs> yeah, next one. But if it was a hit, you know, if, it, if it clicked with them, it would be on the charts the next week mm. because of Countdown. You know, mm. It's the beauty of Countdown. So um, anyway, we finally put out an album, and it did quite well, and we were playing around, but... There was a few problems in in the group, and um, I decided to disband that group and form a new version. And uh, that's where I started looking around for people, and I came up with James Black, who'd been playing keyboards with Russell Morris, and Mm -hmm. I found um, uh, Paul Christie, who was very effusive to to join the group, and he'd been playing with with Kevin Boris Express and a few others. And then um, we had a variety of drummers over a period of time, including Gil Matthews from the Aztecs, mm-hmm. who helped, helped uh, pro- well, he didn't produce it, but he mixed a State of the Heart. So he's a good uh, recording engineer as well. as right. He played on it and then he mixed it. So um, so there was a, a bunch of good guys. And, we came, and I, and I uh, found Eric McCusker was sharing a house with Wilbur Wilde. You know, of course, I knew him because sure. he was playing with the Falcons at the time. Of with course. Joe yeah. And so, and the former bass player of Mondo Rock, who I had just, I just disbanded, but he was, a, he was a guy I liked a lot, Simon Gillies. So he was in the share house as well. So they were kept, they kept sort of saying, here, listen to these cassettes hmm. by Eric McCusker. Uh, the songs he's written and he's quite a good guitarist as well. You know, I'm going, oh, yeah. And I listened to the cassettes. I'm saying, this guy can really write songs. So he came and auditioned on guitar a few times. We kept going back to him. And the thing that got him in was that um, his ability to write these good songs. So he came in and straight away we had, like, as well as songs as I was writing, a whole bunch of really terrific songs written by Eric McCusker. So we had an instant new repertoire. Mm, you know, mm. and that, that a lot of those songs turned up on. Um, we played around for about a year before we finally got a, uh, a record deal, and and then we put out the Chemistry album, and that was a big smash hit. So oh, yeah. it was good. It had four, four singles on it that you all all would know, and it, which we, which Countdown actually had a really big hand in helping to break that band around Australia because. Countdown liked uh, uh, State of the Heart when we bought it out, but mm. we didn't have a, a video to go with it because we didn't have enough bread or the, the you know the the record company wasn't sure where they wanted to commit money for the for that, and so Countdown came to the party and and did this. Um, we went in one afternoon and we shot this special thing of of um, where we walk. I'm walking through this kind of leaf strewn set and there was wind blowing and there's a, you know, hmm. all kinds of stuff going on. It was a big production done by the Countdown crew and people all really remember that clip, you know, hmm. but it actually wasn't a clip. It was just a performance that they shot for Countdown. Right. 
and then repeated a couple of times, you know, saying his, his you know, his, and, you know, State of the Heart's going through. You'd be saying it. You're saying, State of the Heart is yeah. into the top ten. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it's gone yeah, up yeah. another but, position um, this week. <laughs> yeah. So there was a massive hit, and I give Countdown full credit for that. Oh, well, that's great. The work they put in on that, yeah. on that um, shoot. And, and it was uh, nationally number two. So, like, we did really well. It was the first... And then we got a gold single out of it, so it was an amazing thing. And then we were, because of that, we were allowed to go in and record another single, and that was Cool World, cool which world. I wrote. Yeah. And, then, and then we were allowed to make an album. So thank you, Countdown. Next, Molly with Humdrum. Hi, this is Ian Molly Melton with my dear, dear friend Gavin Wood with his Countdown podcast. Do yourself a favor take the stress away from moving home. Contact whitegloveMover.com.au. He'll rock. What a song, but what an amazing band in Daddy Cool and what an amazing songwriter in Ross Wilson and one of the nicest people on earth. I was such a fan of Daddy Cool and I was just so aching to um, see them doing Eagle Rock. I went to the Melbourne Town Hall and there was, and I was singing along with it, well, still trying to sing along with and I was trying to dance and I was the worst dancer in the business. With Ross Wilson, with Mondo Rock and all he's done... And achieved, it's just something astonishing. But without a thought, Eagle Rock is one of those classic songs that come out of Australia, was made in Australia, and it still stands one of the great songs today. If you're thinking of moving house, do yourself a favour. The White Glove Mover can do the hard work. Call 139448. Chemistry and Come Said the Boy, they were big hits, weren't they? Yeah. Well, chemistry. Come said the boy is one of my <laughs> yeah, favorites. Yeah, summer of '81, cool world. Yeah, chemistry and state of the heart. They were all on the chemistry album. Yeah, and then the next album we had New um, Over Mondo, and we had No Time, which was a pretty big hit too, and Queen of Me. Mm. Yeah. Mm, mm. And Touch of Paradise, no, by the way. Touch of Paradise. Yeah, was the first recording right. of Touch of Paradise. From... Paradise that is on the New Over Mondo album. And John Farnham recorded that too. That's right. And, mm. and 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 as they say, well, <laughs> that's history, isn't it? Yeah. Well, people always ask me, oh, yeah, when you know, when did you write that song for John Farnham? I said, oh, well, you know, ten years before he recorded it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't like actually written for him, but I was very very glad that he um he did record it because he's made that song known all around the world. Yeah, and it must have been a thrill for you to get uh, and and a bit nervous because we all didn't know what what uh, Whispering Jack would do no. until everybody heard You're the Voice and bang, it just yeah, went monster, through the roof, didn't monster. it? Yeah, good on him. No, we all love that. So um, let's uh, talk a little about uh, Pat and Bop Girl. Right. Uh, the, 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 the video of that is quite unique. Do you want to tell everybody about it? Well, uh, yeah, well, uh, the video was shot by um, Gillian Armstrong, uh, mm. who's a very famous... Uh, director apparently she you know, wanted to do a film clip or, or got approached by uh wea records and so we got together i was on the road with mondo rock we, we were um you know touring all around the place and we met up with right. her in sydney and i said well this record it's very rhythmic you know i don't want you to uh, uh, so if you can accentuate the rhythm it'd be great because it really annoys me when filmmakers come and they they do a, a story that uh, it doesn't. It's not rhythmic. It's just some kind of story going on that you know, and the song that goes into the background. And so mm -hmm. she took that to heart. God bless her. 
and did that bop girl clip with all the stop motion chairs going down the street and you know mm, it all, mm. so it's totally rhythmic kind of thing so i came off the road and they'd already started shooting the the um the clip in uh, marubra and so i went down for the second day of, of shooting and did my little bit where i go ow in the middle mm. and sing harmonies and stuff so um and then we all out dancing around on the beach um uh, there was a young actress uh, her first acting role and, well, that's one of the things she said. Oh, we're going to have like archetype bop girl type people. We're going to have an old woman, older woman, a medium one, and a young one. And and Pat's in the middle, and she's the leader of the bop girls. Right? Mm-hmm. So, so she said, um, for the young girl, I, I want to get this, this young. I remember quite clearly she said, this young actress, she's really good, and I think she's going places. And this, this will be the, the first kind of bit of film she's done. She's only done TV before. And I said, yeah, whatever you think. You're the boss, you know. I just want to make it rhythmic, okay? That was my big input. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and so there's um, you know, Nicole Kidman. She's 17 years old, uh, in her backyard, smoking a cigarette and jumping around with the bop girls. and <laughs> with, with all that red hair. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, fantastic. I was watching her just the other night on a, a new show she's got called The Undoing, which is fantastic, mm, actually. She's a great actress. A murder mystery thing, yeah. yeah. The Bop Girl was an interesting record to make because I had, we'd done a demo of it a couple of years before and I became obsessed with that song. I've got, I've got to get this song out. So uh, Bondo Rock started having a bit of success on WEA label and I, I talked to them and I said, hey, how about let me in the studio to do something? And they thought, okay. So the first thing I did, it wasn't like a Russ Wilson record. I was like, quick, let's do Bob Girl. <laughs> so we worked, we worked really hard on that and, and uh, until I was happy and, and then gave it to the gave it to uh, the record company and they're going, that's great. You know? That's a number so two hit. <laughs> yeah, then we got the, the – uh, yeah, we're a bit annoyed about that. It was only kept off from number one by um, her label mate, who had the giant novelty record Australiana? Otherwise, it would, uh, you know, ostentatious. Really? Otherwise, it would have been. Otherwise, it would have been number one. Everybody. Uh, yeah, timing's everything. I, I, there's a yeah. there's a clip going around on YouTube with me as Santa Claus, uh, in in Ray Bans going, "She's a bop girl." Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. <laughs> and I and I'd forgotten I'd done it, you know. And I and I looked. At, uh, is that me? Oh my right. God! It is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I've had moments like that. <laughs> the things you, the things you've done, you've made, you've done so much in your career. What's what's next? You, you've got an album, uh, the Ross Wilson album coming out. When when do you yeah, think that will happen? Yeah, since I put out an album, yeah, I've had I've had a couple of albums. The last album I put out was about ten years ago, I think. So like, I'm well overdue. Yeah, I mean, it's funny as you get older, time just seems to go faster. <laughs> it does. It certainly does. Yeah, yeah I know. So uh, that's something to look forward to. All Ross Wilson songs? Yes, I think so. Uh, I'll definitely have a, just a few people I co-write songs with, so there'll be a, co- a few co-writes, but a lot of the stuff I've just written by myself. And uh, I'm, I'm, I think it's going to be a fun album. You know, I want to have a, a good time. There'll be a few laughs on it, you know, as well as <laughs> good music. I, I, I love your attitude. Uh, and you just had you just had a birthday recently, so happy yep. happy birthday. Um, do you want to give a number? Yeah, well, you, people can go back and look at Wikipedia or something. It's not a secret. I'm 73. Well, mate, for a 73, you're still carrying on like a 30-year-old, and I applaud you for that. 
Thank you. Got to keep it going, haven't you? Got to keep, uh, got to keep that microphone. Well, warm. I try to keep fit. You know, I've got a, I go, I've got a personal trainer tw- twice a week, and mm-hmm. well, during lockdown, I've you know been doing walking the dogs every day and all of that. And you got to keep on moving. And you're married to the beautiful Tanya. Life, oh, life yeah, is well, good. Without her, without her, I'd be, I'd be shot. Basically, she keeps me going. It's fantastic. Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hi, this is Ross Wilson, and you're listening to Gavin Woods Countdown Podcast. So, Ross, just before we go, we have ten questions that we'd like to ask. The top ten. All right. Okay, yes, yes, we'd just like to keep you on your toes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, question number 10. What have you learnt and what would you pass on to a young, hopeful musician? Oh, that's a, that's a hard one. Um, basically, you've got to trust your gut. And, you know, the main thing, if you're starting out in a band, say you're some young guy and you're, or girl and you're starting out in a band, you're probably going to start out with, like I did, with kids at school and people you just know. Mm-hmm. But if you really know what you're doing and have got talent, if there's someone in the band that's not pulling their weight, you might be going like, oh, that's my best mate on, on the bass, but he's actually not that good. Mm-hmm. Get rid of them. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to play with people who are as good as you and hopefully even a bit better than you because then you'll get better. You know? That's great advice. So that's what I would tell people yeah, to do. Yeah, that's great advice. Question number nine, what's the best show that you've ever done? Best show I've ever done. Mm-hmm. Now, that's pretty hard, actually. I remember a couple of, if you're talking about big shows, mm-hmm. one of the best ones we ever did was in New Zealand on Sweetwater Festival, which is this massive festival that had it for a couple of years over there. So that that's pretty good. Um, but sometimes it's just the little ones that are great, you know? Mm-hmm. And you're just playing in a small room and you just hit it. For some reason, it all comes together. Yeah, you know? you're in the groove. And it, and you just go, oh, that's what it's all about. Right. You know, really, you're going to come off and you go, yes, we did it right tonight. That was a great gig. And, but that happened, fortunately, that happens quite frequently. Good. Well, it should. You're a professional. Yeah. I mean, the other thing, you know, talking about advice to people, is like they go, well, Ross, when I, when I go to see you, it's like, you know, you come on and you sort of command the stage. And I go, yeah, well, you kind of, you learn that. It's it's actually stagecraft is something it's very difficult to teach people, mm. but basically it's about confidence, I think. So you've just got to come on and the room might be full of people. They're all talking. They've done blah, blah, blah. You've got to be able to come on stage and plant your feet on the stage and go, bang, I'm here, you know. And then people just go, Ugh. And they look at you, and then for the rest of the night, you got them. That's what I did. You don't sort of, That's what I did with Mondo yeah, Rock. Know, yeah, no shrinking violets. You know, you can't. You kind of can't be. It's not about being arrogant. No, it's about just going. Here we are. We're all doing this together. Let's do it. You know, yeah. you're the audience. I can't. I can't do it. I've got great respect for the audience. I can't do it without it. Yeah. With it, what's the point of playing to an empty room? Of course, it's no good. Of course. Like, it's a community experience. You know yeah. that we're having here. Yeah. Now, if you could change anything about the music industry, what would you do? Well, those chunky managers I mentioned before. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, when you're fresh, it's, it's the age-old story, fresh, inexperienced, but you're full of energy, mm. you're full of talent, and that's when the time when 
unfortunately, people sign the wrong deals. You know, they don't go and... I think one of the best things that's happened is that there are now, like, you can access music lawyers, you can go and do courses about, you know, the business mm. and all that. None of that happened before. No. You know? No. In the, way back. It was just like it was a, you're feeding us to the sharks well, kind of thing. You know, you know, you're having a great time until a couple of these ladies look around and go, gee, what happened? Yeah. Well, see, <laughs> we were all fumbling through and so were the managers too. I mean, they had no experience. They were just yeah, so sometimes friends of the band. Oh, yeah, I'll be your manager. Yeah, that's you not know? good. Yeah, yeah. 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 Question number seven, what's the most trouble you've ever gotten into? Well, I, had, I did get arrested uh, uh, just when I was putting together um, the Mighty Kong, so that's probably the worst thing. <laughs> I ended up overnight in, in remand and all that. You know, eventually it got off with a good behaviour ban, but that was a very unpleasant experience. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> did it hit the papers? Yeah. yeah, it hit the papers and everything. Fortunately, it's not something that people repeat a lot, so... Yeah. That's okay. Okay, well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll forget got, about that. Got my good name back again. Yeah. Good on you. <laughs> now, question number six, what's your favourite song to perform? Uh, well, i tell you what, one of my favourite songs to perform is, um, because it's one of the simplest, is Come Back Again. Oh, okay, nice song. Yeah. yeah. Right. I love playing that every time. And, I, and people say, do you still like playing Eagle Rock? Yes, I love playing Eagle Rock, but it's a difficult song to play. I mean, Daddy Cool, it wasn't difficult at all because we were the, we had that magic, whatever it was, and, mm. you know, they interpreted the song and made it what it was. But um, sometimes I have to talk to my band and go, go back, listen to the original Eagle Rock. I don't Like, there's other songs you can, you know, do different things on and that, but Eagle Rock, it has to be exactly like that. Yes. So don't try to mess with it. <laughs> well, see, and when it's right... It, feels fantastic. Yeah, and I think that's one thing I love about Mondo Rock and and uh, and Daddy Cool is you didn't go off on five-minute drum fills and uh, big lead breaks that went for, you know, an hour and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, I, I believe I've paid the money. I want to come and see the act. I want to, I want to hear the act uh, sing their song like I remembered it. Yeah, well, I love editing. And so we, we might record something and then I'd go like, let's cut the... Let's cut the um, intro down and let's do check this out. You know, I love doing that. It's like editing a movie. Uh, one of those records of, of, of um, Mondo Rocks that I really like and uh, still love singing, by mm. the way, is Cool World. Oh, yeah. Song I wrote. Great song. And one of the reasons I like it, there's no guitar solo. There's no solo in it. It just sings the song. Yes. Second, you know, two verses, nice intro, two verses, yep. an interesting bridge, third verse, yep. little reprise at the end yeah. fade out yeah, <laughs> yeah. the perfect song yeah, no, no solos. I, I, I remember I went and saw the British Invasion kind of, you know, they had like Dave D from Dave D, Dozy B, yeah. and we can teach. And then, uh, then Wayne Fontana came out. And, and this is what... Wayne Fontana and the mind bending. Yes, Wayne Fontana said, and it was at the concert hall, I think, many years ago, he said, uh, Godley and Cream wrote a lot of songs for 10cc and they wrote this piece of crap for me. And, <laughs> and, and then he went and, went and sang his hit, man. I was so deflated because I loved the song. And I thought, you asshole, you've just destroyed it all for me. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. yeah. Oh, God. When you talk about stagecraft and what to say on stage, that's a big yeah, no-no, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't do that. Yeah. Question number five. Name your three dinner guests, dead or alive. Oh, my goodness. Well, I would would have really, really liked to have um, met John Lee Hooker. Mm. 
And uh, probably another guest I would have would be Howling Wolf. They're my two favourite blues guys. Yeah. And I still got them. I've got them on. I've got a jukebox. I've got them on my jukebox. Okay. Along with a lot of other people. Um, who else? Oh, no. Bridget Bardot was. There you go. You, <laughs> you, need, you need someone to break it up, don't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Come on, yeah. boys. Stop talking about music. Let's get back to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Question number four. If you could open up a show for any artist, dead or alive, who would it be? Open a show for. Hmm. Well, I'd probably like James Brown at his, you know, oh, top yes. of his form in the in the mid seventies. That would have, one of my uh, regrets is Daddy Cool were on tour in America, and we were in St Louis, and it said like we're, we're leaving the next day, and, and the next day was like James Brown's going to be playing, and it was a time of like hot pants and all of those fantastic mm. songs of his. You know? yeah. I would have just loved to go to that. Oh you know? yeah. And uh, but unfortunately, I didn't. I saw him towards the end, end of his career, but um, I would have loved to have seen him then in full uh, flight. But yes. to open for him, that would be that would be very difficult. But I'd still like to have done it. <laughs> yes. All right, we're nearly there. Question number three: What was the effect of Countdown to your career? Well, I already mentioned how uh, grateful I am for them putting the work they did into the State of the Heart production, mm. and because I, I just believe that you know that really broke uh, um, Mondo Rock all around the country. And that's the beautiful thing about Countdown was that it was truly a national show and everybody would tune in at 6 o'clock, I think it was, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Yep. And, um, and uh, on a Sunday and, hear, and get excited about it all, you know, and talk about it in, in their lounge rooms. And when, when I realised just how pervasive and the, the long reach of Countdown had was we're on tour, I think it was with Mental, Mental as Anything and Man at Work, we're doing this uh, tour all around the country, and we had to land somewhere in WA to, to pick up fuel, you know, and it wasn't even one of the places we were playing. Hmm. And there were some people, um, locals there, you know, Aboriginal people, a few others, uh, at, behind the fence at the little airport, and we hopped out to stretch our legs, and they're going, hey, g'day, Ross, you know. That's fantastic. Love your work and blah, blah, blah. And I went, wow, that's all That's all because of Countdown. Yeah, yeah, it went right across Australia. Yeah, fantastic. Question number two, what have you learnt over your musical journey? Well, you mentioned humble before. I've learned to be more humble. I think I used to be a bit of a control freak in certain things. But, you know, like you live and learn. And I, you know, had a few occasions where I had to go, gee, you know, maybe I should, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe these things that keep happening to me, maybe it's my fault, you know, yeah. <laughs> not other people's fault. Right. Uh, so a bit of an awakening along the way. And now I'm much more relaxed with, um, with the musicians I play with and you know, I give them lots of leeway to do things and create. And it works out much better that way. So, uh that's, I think that's how, what I've, the best thing I've learned musically along the way is just to just kind of, you know, work with the best people you can find at any given time and sure, give them instructions and that, but, but just give them some freedom as well because then they'll play much better. Hmm. You know? Okay. Well, the number one question on the Countdown Top Ten, I know your mum and dad were into music. Who inspired, yeah. who inspired you to make music? Well, in a way they did because, you know, I was just growing up around in Hampton and uh, listening to the radio and, and 
but in the in the household there was jazz music because my dad loved jazz, so hearing a lot of that. My mother was into classics and stuff, so I got to hear that as well. In the meantime, I'm listening on my radio to to you know pop music and that, and then rock and roll happened, and and my, they weren't they were very supportive. Like for instance, when I was ten years old, I said, "Dad, can we go to the festival hall? There's one of those big rock shows on, mm-hmm. and see um because I." bought a single by Buddy Holly and the Crickets. Right. That'll be the day. Yeah. And I said, the Buddy Holly and the Crickets, are on. can we go and see Buddy Holly and the Crickets? And Jerry Lee Lewis is on too, and Johnny O'Keefe. So I go, we go along there. He took me along to see this thing when I was 10 years old, you know. I'm going, wow. That's a cool that's dad. Fantastic. Yeah, that's a cool dad. Yeah, they, and one stage, they were like, he, he was with, we had another dad and his two sons with us who so we were all friends and stuff. So we're sitting up there in the bleachers and all the kids are starting to jump up and down and run down the aisles and all this kind of stuff, you know. And I'm going, gee, I hope Dad doesn't take us home. It's getting a bit wild here, you know. And I, I, I looked around at him and he had this huge grin on his face, just loving it, you know. Oh, great. <laughs> oh, isn't that good? Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, Ross, so that, that, you know, and then as soon as rock and roll came along, I'm going, wow, this, I love this, the wilder the better. So mm. that it all it all came together, you know, just what I heard around the place and then rock and roll was like, that's what I want to do. You know? And then the Beatles came and blew everybody's head off. Beatles were good, but by that time I'd sort of start, started to discover blues music. And that's one of the things. See, I pull out my dad's old records. He had like a lot of 78s he bought when he was a kid. Mm. And um, there was like boogie woogie records and things. I'm thinking to myself, gee, that sounds just like Terry Lee Lewis, you know. Yeah. And so I was able to, through in my own head, go, it all comes from the same place. Mm. And then I found out it's blues, mm. you know, the blues. Mm. So the blues and rock and roll, it's all the same. So I, I, that helped me not be snobby about music. You know, it's like, well, I know where it all comes from. And um you know, it goes off in different directions, but it's all come from the same well. It's just how you package it, huh? Yep. And then, and how you the individuals interpret it. Mm. Well, Ross, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you on the Countdown Podcast. The legend is a word people throw around a lot, but in your case, you are a living legend with your body of work. I like the living bit. Yes. The living bit. Yes, like. yes. Stay alive for as long as you can, please, because I want to hear more Ross Wilson music because it excites Thank me. You. So, uh, okay, yeah, well, I've got, a, I've got a few surprises in store, I think. Looking forward to it, mate. Great to talk to you and all the very best. Thank you. See you, Gavin. Gavin Wood's Countdown Podcast was thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.